Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to not only worship, but to hear your word just read to us as it would have been for many centuries in the church. Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us in many, many ways, especially though our generosity of the Word of God that for centuries was uh, put together and recorded, and now we have. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that uh, we can be as appreciative of having the Word as others, other churches and other centuries had of just listening to the Word, the privilege of having easy access to many different um, varieties of study guides and all those kind of things, Lord. Let us not take those things um, for granted. And let us not, Lord, take for granted coming together and hearing from your word. Even though it's just sharing of a sermon, a message, it still is a proclamation of truth that is biblical truth that you have designed to be shared, and we thank you for it. Lord, forgive us for our wandering minds, our wandering hearts, our wandering perspectives. Lord, we ask that you draw us to yourself, Lord, you said that no one can come to the Father unless you draw them. No one can come to you, Christ, unless the Father draws them. We ask you to draw us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to work in our midst, that this word wouldn't just be words, a message wouldn't be a message, but it'd be your word, your message to each of us and to all of us here and now on this day. We thank you again for the privilege, and we move forward, Lord, with the expectation not just of hearing, but through your spirit, understanding and obeying uh, the words you give to us. We thank you, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. We're working our way through the book of Luke. Last week, Josh shared from Luke uh, chapter 5. And in there, basically, it's that Jesus calls his disciples, an event that happened there. And basically, Jesus uh, calls a motley crew. He does not call the affluent, the rich. He does not call the well-educated. He calls a motley crew of people to be his disciples. And Josh unpacked that for us. And as in, in chapter 6, he continues. The, the events in Jesus' life continues. He's been preaching and teaching. And his fame is spreading. And, and, and what has also been happening while his fame and his spread because of his preaching of the good news, the kingdom, and because of his healing and delivery from, with demons and those kind of things is at the same time that his fame has been spreading and people are coming more and more to see him, at the same time there is more and more resistance to Christ. More and more people, particularly the, at this time and point, the religious leaders are upset more and more with Christ. And as we, as we look into today, not only does he... It was Christ just saying, hey, this is what a disciple is, as he calls the disciple. Today in Luke 6, Jesus gets very specific and says, I want to talk about what is the distinguishing characteristics of a disciple. Uh, he, has, he has with him religious leaders, we'll look at this in a minute, and he has a crowds, multitudes of people, and he has those who call themselves his disciples. And he's going to say, if you're really my disciple, there are going to be some characteristics in your life that will set you apart from people who are just part of the crowds. And those characteristics are going to be a little bit different than what we would expect. They were definitely different than what the people who heard them expected. Straightforward, it's distinguishing characteristics of a disciple or follower of Christ, both then and now, 
are twofold in, according to Luke 6. One is, is that because they are followers of Christ, and that's important, because they are following Christ and being obedient to the gospel and they're being changed by the gospel, they will have enemies. A characteristic of someone who follows Christ is that they will have enemies. And the second characteristic is that Jesus says, and he spends the vast majority of this chapter talking to them about, not only will you have enemies, but you are to love those enemies. Two things that took that audience by surprise and, un, and oftentimes takes us surprise by, by surprise, takes us off guard. We hear phrases like love your enemies, but what does that really mean? Why is that a characteristic of being a Christian? And that's what he's going to talk about today. Jesus, walk, we walk through this. If you have a Bible, you can look at chapter 6. We're going to park ourselves in, 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 in a few verses, but just to give you a flow of where things are going with this, in chapter 6, he begins with some interaction with the Pharisees. We're not going to walk through that much, other than he's in the synagogue, he's in, the, in their version of the church, if you will, and the religious leaders are there, and they're waiting for him because they want to accuse him of doing wrong. They're upset with him. He's been preaching the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're upset with Jesus, so they're setting a trap for him. And in there is a man who needs to be healed. He has, we don't told why, but he has a withered hand. And Jesus knows that they're there. The religious leaders want to trap him. And the question is, for their mind, can you work on the Sabbath? And the question is, is healing somebody, making them whole, is that work? Is the issue that they were upset about. And Jesus stands, we're told in this passage in Luke 6, Jesus stands with them and and Luke makes a very keen observation of what happened. He says in verse 6, 10, uh, he says that Jesus, after looking around at them all. Now, this little detail is kind of important. What Jesus is saying, he's innocent God, he's preaching, and they're there to accuse him, and he just basically stops and looks at all of them. Every single buddy in the room, he looks eyeball to eyeball. And then he says, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man's hand's healed. And then we're told, what is the response of those in the synagogue? From Jesus healing a man so that now he's whole, the response is, we're told in verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. A response to the healing of a man, a response to Jesus bringing the gospel very tangibly to a person's life that dramatically changed his life. Now he has his, has his physical health. Their response was animosity. They were filled with fury. They were ripped. And one of the themes we're going to see through Luke and the book of Acts is that, is that, that uh, for Jesus himself and for Christians and for the church, that they are, when they preach the gospel, when lives are transformed by the gospel, when it is announced, a common response by the multitudes is resistance and animosity and even persecution. We sometimes forget that, but if we read through this, this is, this is the track record of Jesus and the apostles and the early church. We preach the gospel, lives are changed, and the hammer comes down. People persecute them. In fact, this theme is not all over the place. place. In Timothy, I mean, in Paul, at the end of his life, is writing to his, one of the guys he's mentoring, Timothy, and he, he writes to him, and Paul has been discipling him and sharing with him and, and gives him, and he says in 2 Timothy 3, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Uh, Paul's a great teacher. He's a great model. He's a great role model. He's a great mentor. But then he continues. 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from the Lord rescued, from the Lord, from them all the Lord rescued me. So not only he shared the good things with Timothy, he shared his suffering with Timothy. Now again, if Paul had stopped there, we would say, man, it sucks to be Paul. I mean, if you're going to be famous and going to be the Apostle Paul, you've got, you got to expect some of that kind of stuff. And we would say, you know, that's too bad that he suffered so much, but we wouldn't have much expectations for us. But Paul didn't stop there. He continued in verse 12, and he goes, indeed. It's a, it's a word of explanation, like, let me tell you guys something. Let me tell you, Timothy. He says, and this is what he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Do you hear that? All, everybody, who desires to walk close with, not just live a godly life in some legalistic weirdo way, but in Christ. So if you are going to, we are going to have people, we as people are going to have our lives transformed by the gospel. A natural result of that will be, we will be persecuted. People will be angry. They will literally come against us, verbally, maybe even physically. Paul is including that. In fact, he even goes on and says, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus in John's gospel said that the world hates you, but you know something? It hated me first. And, and the reason it hates you as my followers is because it hated me more. So one of the characteristics of being a disciple of Christ is persecution, is resistance is animosity is that people will get upset when you share the gospel with them when you share the good news with them when you bring that yeah it's good news but what they hear is bad news and they will resist and they will fight back a little later in luke's in, in luke 6 and in, in verse 17 if you want to look down there he is he's done some stuff he's he's called his apostles and now he's he's down there he's come down and share he's preaching and we're told by luke that the multitudes of people he doesn't even give us a number can't count them all multitudes of people coming to him and they're seeking the specific they are coming specifically to jesus because he's healing them he's driving out the demons he's speaking the gospel to them they come to hear what he has to say and his crowds build, and the crowds build. And we're told in there that, um, that he, Jesus is aware of them. And the power, Luke says, of Jesus is just power is going out of him. And people are just being healed left and right. But in that, Luke makes a distinction. There are, he calls them, a great crowd of disciples and a multitude of people. He makes a distinction between two groups of people. And in there, he says, and, and the people, the crowd of people basically are saying, what do I get? I'm here. I want to see Jesus. I want to hear something good. And I want to be healed. And I want, I want something good. But notice, particularly, Jesus' Jesus's generosity, whatever their motive, wherever they came from, whatever their status in life, it did not make a difference. Jesus was generous with them all. He healed them. It didn't make a difference with their social status, their ethnicity, their convictions. Or even if they were loyal to him, it did not matter. Jesus, in his grace, was very generous to the crowds. But also in there, he says, there are a crowd of disciples. And many people said, you know what? I'm going to follow this Jesus guy. I'm going to be one of his people. We know he's already picked 12, what he calls apostles. But we also know there's multitudes, and we know there's at least 70. There's probably a couple hundred people who would name themselves followers of Christ, who would be identified as followers of Christ. And, and we see here in this, Luke tells us that Jesus 
focus his attention on those people. The people who named themselves as followers of Christ, he focused. He says in verse 20, if you look there, just like he did with the Pharisees in the, in the, um, in the synagogue, Jesus says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And then he said. So Jesus did the same thing. There's multitudes of people. His, his disciples, being a crowd, were probably somewhat together. So he looks them. He looks them all eyeball to eyeball as much as he can in that way. And he says, I have something to tell you guys. If you're going to claim to be a follower of me, there's something you need to know. And he, un- and he, un- he starts sharing the distinguishing uh, aspects of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And the dominant questions for them is not just what do I get? Yes, it's okay for a disciple to say what do I get from Jesus? That's not a bad question. But what Jesus is going to say is because of what I do get, what are my obligations to give? That's the change from a disciple than from the crowd. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear. That's an expression that basically hearing is, he says in other places, Jesus says, let him who has ears, let him hear. It's just not the physical capacity of hearing sound. What Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, there's something you need to not only listen to, but you need to understand and you need to respond to. To hear the word of Jesus isn't simply to take it in audibly. It is to say, I think I get it. Now what changes with me? And we respond. That, that call of obedience is what Jesus means by hearing. And Jesus stresses that the rep- proper response to the gospel in God's kingdom is that they will be, will be demonstrated in radical ways. He's going to confront them on some things that they probably did not want to hear. And, and that, that basically he's going to say that their love has to be extraordinary. It can't be like the crowds. It can't be love like everybody else loves. If you're going to follow me, you're going to love like Jesus loves. And that's a lot harder thing to do. And there's a a reversal here of what is expected. The reversal of, I call it the reversal of the status quo. Actually, all through this chapter and all through Luke, you'll see where Jesus say, hey, this is the way the world is, but in my kingdom, it's reversed. It's exactly the opposite. And here's a case in point. He's saying here, the status quo, when I use that, that's the existing state of affairs, the norm. What does the crowd do? Well, this is what the crowd does. The crowd love the loving. The crowd show love to people who love them back. Most of us do that. He says they give to um, other people when they, they give to other people what you can get from them. Relationships should be reciprocal. That's what love is in the world. But Jesus is saying that's not love as a disciple. Disciple is kingdom love. And the follower of Christ says he loves, he doesn't love the loving, those who love you. A disciple loves the unloving. The disciple show love to people who are unloving to them and even hostile to them. A disciple, a follower of Christ, gives other people what they don't get from them. They don't say, well, I get this from you, so I'll give it to you. They say, I get hostility from you, so I'll give you love. That's, the, that's a flip. That's a reversal of the status quo. And now the important thing to remember here is this is because, not because they're just new teaching of ethics, this is because of who they are in Christ and they understand God's love for them in Christ, as we'll see. Jesus gives a series of imperatives. He gives a series of commands. It's really kind of, if you study Jesus' teaching as he teaches, 
we get lots of little snippets of Jesus' teaching. He gives, says the Sermon on the Mount in different, so this sermon. He gives lots of different times where he'll say short little things, and we, we unpack that. This is a case where he spent quite a bit of time going over and over, and he comes at it from three or four different angles, four different angles, what it means to love our enemies. It must, it must have been kind of important for him to take that long and that much detail to come at it, because I think the main reason is it's so counterintuitive. It's so counter to our sinful nature. It's so, it's so counter to our self-preservation. But it's in light of the gospel, that's the way people love. Jesus spent a lot of time in this particular passage and other places about loving people who are your enemies. And look at verse 27. We're going to work from 27 down. We're going to go through this. He goes, verse 27, he goes, But I say to you who hear, in other words, listen up, love your enemies. Just, just love your enemies. Now, as I mentioned, that, uh, the first reaction to that, at least it is for my ears, I don't know about you, um, it, is kind of counterintuitive. Seems like sort of an extremist thing to do. In fact, what I think of, loving my enemies sounds kind of dangerous. It sounds kind of risky. Okay? They're my enemies. Okay? Loving them uh, is not necessarily a good thing. That makes me vulnerable to them. I'm not really keen on that. I don't know about you guys. And he wants it. Now, I do want to specify here, what do we mean by enemies? What does Jesus mean by enemies? He doesn't mean just some generic thing of people who are either politically or some other socially way that are out against you because they don't like that you're an American or they don't like that you're a Republican or Democrat or they don't like whatever. He's not talking some generic enemy, people who are, are criminals in the sense of doing those things. He's specific with who the enemies are, which we've already mentioned. In verse 22, we didn't look at this passage, but in verse 22 he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you as evil. And then he says on account of the Son of Man. So Jesus, earlier in this chapter, defines the enemy as those people, because of their walk, because they're followers of Christ, people are, view them as the enemy. They are enemies, of, they, they have enemies, because they're following Christ, because of Him. Not just because they're jerks, or where they're, you know, annoying, or whatever, or whatever, whatever else other reason you can have enemies. It's specifically, you're following Christ, and the fact that you do that, people will not like you and will actively come against you. That's the enemies he's talking about. He's very specific. And he says, love those who hate you actively and who actively persecute you. And, and I don't know about you, but I struggle with that a little bit. As I read these kind of things, they say, really? And my mind starts playing the game. My mind starts rationalizing. My mind starts saying, well, if I have these enemies, how can I love them you know, from a distance. How can, how can I say, you know, I will, you know what I'll do? I'll just avoid them. That's the best way to love them is just avoid them. Or I would say, you know, I'll tolerate them as long as they don't go too far. As long as they don't go too far with this enemy stuff, this persecution stuff, then I draw the line someplace and then I'm going to push back. Or, or maybe it's, um, you know what I'll do? I just won't make a big deal about Jesus. If I don't make a big deal of Jesus, they won't be upset with me. And, you know, we'll let bygones be bygones. Now, if Jesus had only said, love your enemies, we probably could work on some of those things, couldn't we? We probably could finagle our way of protecting ourselves by loving in that way. But unfortunately, Jesus doesn't leave it that way. 
If you look in that verse 27, he gets more specific. And he tells us what it looks like. What does it look like for you to love your enemies if you're a follower of mine? Verse 27, the second half, he says, not only love your enemies, then he says, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. That's taking action. You have to interact with them so that they benefit from it. And then in verse 28, he says, bless those who curse you. That means you use your words. You speak to them and you speak about them in a way that blesses them. They have to be within earshot. They have to, or other people have to be within earshot to hear what you have to say about them. And then in verse 28, the second half, he says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for, not against, pray for those who abuse you. Our attitude, our desires, at seeking God's favor for them. That's what it means to love our enemies. Those are verbs. Those are actions. They're very personable verbs. You have to interact with the enemy to do those things. You have to have their well-being in mind to do those things. That's what it means to love enemies. And he is calling us to proactively, followers of Christ, to proactively seek the well-being of those who try to harm us. And truth is, um, if we're just honest, it's hard. This is difficult. And, And I know Jesus knows it's difficult. That's why he spent so much time trying to unpack it. This, this just goes against our grain. And we are required to reverse our cultural and our natural instincts and our selfish desires, and we are to love those who, who are our enemies. Paul goes in great length, and, and, if, and, and, and other authors, they go in great length of talking about this. You can look in, for example, Romans 12, but is, one of the things I thought of, well, is this kind of teaching to love your enemies picked up anyplace else? Is this kind of an anomaly in Scripture where it's only mentioned once, which should be enough? But is it ever reinforced anyplace else? And actually it is in a number of places. In Romans chapter 12, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the church there, this is an early letter to the church of Thessalonians, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another and to everyone. In 1 Peter, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but, but on the contrary, bless. For, those who, for this you were called that you obtain a blessing. So this teaching of loving, this understanding that being a follower of Christ and actually blessing those who curse us and doing good to those who try to harm us was not only taught in the early church, but was modeled in the early church. We know, for example, Jesus and Stephen in Acts chapter 7, they both interceded for the very people who were killing them. At the moment they were dying, what were they doing? They were praying for the benefit of the people who were killing them. In Romans, and, and then we ask, uh, you know, how, how does he expect us to love this way? How, how does God expect us to love enemies, those people who want to harm us? And, and why is that reasonable? And it's because basically that's the way God shows his love to us in Christ. We're told in Romans 5, he says, in 5 eight, he says, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows, it's a verb. God doesn't just love from heaven and say, hey, I hope it goes well back down there, guys. No, Christ came to earth. He suffered, and he, he demonstrated. He took action, and he walked among us, and he took on his sins for us. And that, that we, when we still were sinners, when we were still God's enemy, as we'll see in a minute, he died for us. He didn't just say, hey, I hope it goes well. 
He did the ultimate act of sacrifice. He did the ultimate giving of his loving of his enemies. He died for us while we were still enemies. That's why Christ can say, love your enemies. Because that's the way I loved you guys. And then, if he left it there, again, we could move on, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. He continues. He, said, he gives us, in verse 29, he gives us four illustrations of what it looks like to love our enemies. Four illustrations, four descriptions of, of, of what it looks like. And I wish, again, I'll be honest with you guys, as I study this, I wish he hadn't done this. I, I kind of wish he had been a little bit more vague. Okay? I can work within vagueness, but the more specific Jesus gets, the more I'm kind of hemmed into, yeah, okay, I have to work with that. Okay? Anybody else feel that way, or is that just me? Okay? He gets very specific. Verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. He doesn't mean just beating, like, which would be true. He means insulting you, striking somebody, slapping somebody. You know the old take the white gloves and slap them on the face thing? He basically is saying if you culturally insult you, they demean you, they dishonor you, have them do it again. And then it goes on in the second half of verse 29. And from the one who takes from your cloak... Do not withhold your tunic either. Verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you. Um, and second half. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, these make me very uncomfortable. Just to be straightforward with you guys. Okay? These make me very uncomfortable. And I like to try to make them some kind of metaphorical meaning out of them. But I don't really think we can. I think he means what he says. And parts of the reasons I think that made me uncomfortable as I thought about this and I studied this is the, the main thing that made, the, the first thing that made, I should say, that made me uncomfortable was that these imply that we remain vulnerable. This isn't just that there's an incident, we put up with it, we escape, whew, dodge that bullet, we don't have to do with this again. But these examples of Jesus are implying that they come back for more and more and more, and we remain vulnerable to that. And that's how, one of the ways we love them is allow them, show our acts of love to them, and to do that, because we have to have that contact, to do that, we have to have, um, have to be, remain vulnerable over time. That makes me uncomfortable. Another thing that made me uncomfortable, I was reading some, some John Piper recently, and um, he made some comments about love, and he made some comments about this verse. And, and what he said really struck me and, and kind of really pointed out something that I hadn't thought of when I was studying this passage, but something that really rang true. And he says this, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, the, the, the primary reason we struggle with these examples of love is because they truly, they disclose what we truly love the most. He says, John Piper is saying that the reason we struggle is that what we love the most is our own reputation, our own comfort, our own material possessions, more than we love other people. And what bothers us about this is we don't want to give up our honor. We don't want to give up our possessions. We don't want to give up our comfort. We, we, we value those more than people. That's uncomfortable. And if Piper had stopped there, okay. But he didn't. He says, he goes on and says, you know, we love the treasures and security and honor we have in this world more than the treasures and security and honor we have in Christ. 
And he says, Jesus, Jesus is calling us to cha- uh, for a change of heart that looks to Jesus and his reward rather than what this world can give. We struggle sometimes, and I think Piper's right. I think that's what cut me and why these make me uncomfortable. I want to hang on to things that are mine, my comfort particularly, and I'm not willing to sacrifice those for the benefit of somebody else, especially if they're against me. And what, he's, what Piper's pointing out is, okay, but you're really telling who the idols of your heart are. And you're really saying what it means to love Christ. You don't value the treasure that Christ gives you as much as do you value what you have here in the world. That's, those are powerful words. That's what makes us uncomfortable. And, and why, should we, why, why is it reasonable for Jesus to do this? Why is, it, why is it even possible for Jesus? Well, let's think about this. What did he give up for us? What did he give up for us? He's the eternal son of God. He's in heaven with, the, with the, the, the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's eternal in his glory and he's all those things going on. And we're told in Philippians 2 that we're supposed to have the same mind, the same attitude that's in Christ Jesus, who, and then he describes, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't know that I'm equal with God, but I'm not going to hang on to that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he became a human, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even more and became obedient to the point of death, even the shame of death on the cross. Christ didn't hang on to the riches and treasures that he had as the Son of God. He set them aside and he took on all the shame and all the guilt of our sins and yet from that, we have the benefit of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and, and adoption as sons of God and all those things. We get all those because he is willing to do that. So when he tells us to love and turn the other cheek and do those things, he's telling you guys, just you want to be my follower, you want to be a disciple of me, then you need to imitate me in this way. His reversal of the status quo. We're supposed to, we want to love the loving, but followers of Jesus love the unloving. In verse 31, he says the command again. Now, again, we might have expected Jesus to stop here. You did a good job. But he keeps going. Excuse me. He gives here in verse 31. And as you wish others would do to you, do also to them. What do we know that as? The golden rule. The golden rule. Okay? The golden rule. We know what it is. (laughs) Did we realize that it was in the context of loving our enemies? That... Who, who, who are those other people? Who are the, those people? You're supposed to love those um, others. He's talking about your enemies. That's who he's talking about. And um, in there, he, in, there's, in Leviticus 19, there's a similar one. That we get, you shall not take revenge or bear grudge against the son, your sons of your own people. So if they're family, don't take revenge. Implying what if they're not family? Knock yourself out. Okay. Um, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus took that a little farther, and he didn't say just love your neighbor as yourself. He said love your neighbor, I love your enemy as yourself. That's who he's talking about. Love your enemy as yourself. Now, I want to note, we, we, we play with these words again a little bit. What Jesus didn't mean is um, the way I want things done to me is the way I'm going to treat them. Okay? We, we interpret that to mean... I like life this way, so I'm going to treat them that way. I, I, don't, I like being aloof from other people. I'm an introvert. I don't like that. So I'm going to just leave them alone. 
Okay? I like to be left alone. I'll leave them alone. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is actually the exact opposite. If, if I wanted people to treat you, how would I, I would want to communicate to them, this is what I would like. That's what he's asking you to do doing the golden rule. What are their preferences? What are their needs? Do it to them that way. He's flipping it and putting the responsibility of us being proactive and benefiting them, not using ourselves as the standard for what it looks like to benefit them. And, um, and this, is, again, is action, uh, this is love in action, the way it's thoughtful of the other person, even the person opposing us. And most likely, it will cost us in being inconvenienced. And then Jesus goes on and gives three examples. Again, he doesn't just say it. He gives three examples to show the disciples that love is different from other people's love. Notice the movement in these three examples. It goes from being an attitude to tangible expressions of love. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that of you, to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you, if you do good to those who do good to you, what, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So the, 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 what he's getting to here is, is pretty self-evident. Is that if we like like everybody, if we love like everybody else, even the sinners, even the evil people, they, they do nice things because people do nice back to them. What credit get? What what is that? Sh- Basically, what credit? The benefit he means, benefit and credit is the same thing. Basically, he says, what, what does that show about you? If you love that way, what does that say? You're a sinner. You're just like them. There's, there's nothing. It doesn't say anything about you being a follower of Christ. It doesn't say anything about us, being tra- our lives being transformed by God and being different in any way. We're just like everybody else. If we love to receive or love safely to make sure we get back in equal amounts... The result is, you're just like them, and you get what they get. And the key phrase there is, what credit? He asks three times, what credit? Benefit, same word. What, what is it, why does it show about you? He's, he's in their face with this, that they're just like everyone else. Love, we want to love the loving and those who will reciprocate that. Jesus says we are to love the unloving and those who won't give us back that. And then he gives us a third command. Again, he continues. Verse 35. But, and and it's a contrast here to, if you're going to be just like the sinners, okay, in the previous couple verses, and then he begins with a contrast word. But, in the beginning of verse 35, you're going to be just like them, but, if you're going to be my follower, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Those sinners love this way. My followers love the exact opposite. And, and uh, Jesus repeats the command to love in action. And this time he gives, though, a little more explanation. He gives that there's a reward or recognition and a reason. In this verse, he, gives, he doesn't just repeat it. He, he unpacks it a little farther. He gives an explanation. Look at verse 35, the second half of verse 35. He says, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. The reward, your reward will be great. Your reward will be awesome. The, excuse me, any inconvenience you have now, any suffering you have now, when I return, I'm 
reading other passages previous in this chapter back. When I return, you'll get a whole lot more. Okay? He's already talked about that, even in Luke 6. Okay? There is a reward. There are future blessings for even present discomfort and suffering. We are not a people, he, just followers of Christ, aren't just focused on what's happening now in this moment. They know in an eternal perspective in what God is doing that there will become a time when all, all things will set account and those who follow Christ and, and, and are in Christ will be rewarded as sons of God. Those who don't, won't. He already gave blessings and woes. We didn't really look at them. You heard them read, but you didn't, we didn't look at them. He also gives, though, a recognition. He always gives a recognition. And there he says, um, and you will be sons of the Most High. What does he mean by that? You'll be sons of the Most High. You get, well, if you love this way, you get a privilege? No, he's actually saying you will be recognized for what you are. It's re- you will be recognized as part of God's family. If you love like God loves you, you will, you're demonstrating and people will recognize that you are part of that and you're part of, the, of God. Not only just any God, but God of the, you'll be a son of of the Most High. We will be demonstrating our relationship with Him. In John, 1 John, he says, he says, see what kind, kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. One of the results of our being, God loving us in Christ is we are now His children. The crowds out there who do not follow Christ are not children of God. The Bible does not call people who are in part of humanity children of God. It's those who respond to the gospel in repentance and faith that are adopted into God's family and are children of God. Why is that? Because God loves us, we're his children. But he also tells us in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. So when we do love other people, when we do share those things, what are we demonstrating? We're demonstrating that we, and being recognized for, that we understand and we have been changed by God's love for us. And when we, I can understand that love, we get that love, and we pass it through. We love because he already has loved us. And then he gives us a reason there in verse, verse 35, the last part. For he is kind to the ungrateful and, and evil. God is gracious and kind to his enemies, to the ungrateful, to the evil. God is still kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He will be until Christ re- returns again. God is kind to people who spurn him and who hate him and do all sorts of things against him. God still gives them grace after grace after grace. He's kind to them. And, and, th- and, and because God was gracious, and he, Jesus wants to know, he's not just gracious to anybody, but you disciples, he was gracious to you. You're here because of God's grace. So he was, he was sharing that with them. That privilege of becoming sons of the Most High is, is not something that's a natural state or earned. It's something that extends because of who we are. And because God is that way, he's calling us to reflect that, that in, in our actions. Because God loves us that way, he wants us to share love in that way. The ultimate reason is, why can we do this? Why, Jesus, why can you do that? It's because that's the way God loves you, you ungrateful, evil person. Now, we, I think we struggle with that. In Romans 5, Paul talks, he's unpacking, talking about people dying, and he, and he says in verse 8, but God chose his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. We've already mentioned that. See, since then, therefore, you have been justified by his blood. How much more shall you be saved by him from the wrath of God? And then Romans 5.10. For while we were his enemies. See, we, sometimes it's okay to say God demonstrated because we're sinners. That's sort of a generic thing. Where it's okay that God died for us as sinners. But Paul went beyond that and said, in and, and, and describing this, for if, if while we were his enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were the enemies of God. God removed the wrath between, that was due us between the judgment between us, and he brought us back to God. How did he do that? Through the death of Christ, he says right there. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, that through whom we have received reconciliation. So he's saying we received the graciousness of God as, even as his enemies. I also think one of the struggles with this, and this is also something that I've struggled with over years, is, is, and I've had to come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. I think we struggle with the command of loving our enemies because we struggle with actually believing that we were ever God's enemies to be loved. We don't, we don't often view ourselves as the enemies of God. We think, well, of course he loves us. We're people. I'm not such a bad guy. <laughs> Look at this guy. I'm pretty good compared to him. Okay? We, we sometimes, I think, we devalue the cross because we devalue what it meant for Christ to die for. We think he died for us. We're such good people. That's not why he died for us. That's not who we were when he died. A number of years ago, this became very poignant to me, very life-changing to me in my view of of the cross. In a, in a book, again, by John Piper, he said, man-centered humans are amazed that God would withhold life and joy from his creatures. But a God-centered Bible is amazed that God would withhold judgment from sinners. And then he goes on. It took the infinitely costly death of the Son of God to repair the dishonor that my pride has brought against the glory of God. It horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is a witness of my infinite worth since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. Okay, let's stop there. There's a lot of people that say the reason Christ died is because we were so valuable. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a lie. Piper goes on explaining. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory. It first talks about how great and awesome God is. And a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. What should shock us is that we have brought such contempt on the worth of God that the very death of his son was required to vindicate that worth. The cross stands as a witness to the infinite worth of God and the infinite outrage of our sin. We struggle with loving our enemies because we never, we rarely think of ourselves as one time having been the enemies of God. And yet, he loved us. Yet, Christ came to this world to suffer for us. Christ died on the cross. Immense, infinite pain and suffering in the judgment of God for us. Not because we were so valuable, but because of his love for us. That's the value of the cross. 
Paul, we want to love the loving, but followers of Jesus love the unloving, just like God does. And Jesus continues. He says in verse 36, Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. The point of of verse 35 is repeated. Imitate your heavenly Father. Imitate your heavenly Father. Okay? If if you want to, to know what it looks like, imitate what God has already done for you. In this case, he uses the word mercy. God's character guides our character. God's attitude towards us guides our attitude towards others. In the Bible, there's two things that go hand in hand. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Okay? We deserve wrath, God's judgment. Grace is that we get reconciliation to God. We get adopted as sons. We get... We get a justification and reconciliation, all those things. That's grace. We get benefit from God. Um, we don't deserve it, but he gives it to us. Mercy is the flip side of that. Mercy is because we deserve judgment, we deserve the wrath, we deserve those things, what we, we don't get it. Christ got it on our behalf. So we get mercy. Those things go together. And in Christ, that's exactly what we got. We get both. We don't get this, our punishment, but we get far more with Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for, for our sake, for our benefit, our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In, in Christ's death, we get grace and mercy. We get mercy. He died for our sins. We don't have to suffer. But we also get grace. We become the righteousness of God. Jesus was very specific in this, and he again unpacks what this means, and he gives four commands. Again, he's going more. He gives four commands in the negative and in the positive. He says in the negative, don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, do this. And each one has a promise with it. Look at verse 37. Look at verse 37. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. And then verse 38, the second half of verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, um, and will be put in your lap. For with the measure used, it will be measured to you. He's talking about how much love should we go. Well, it's, how is it going to be measured to us? It contains, it's going to be put to somebody, a standard. How, how are we going to do this? Naturally, this makes us a little uncomfortable. Because, at least I did, again, for me, I've, I've de- expressed a lot of the discomfort this passage has caused me this week. Um, in that I naturally think of it coming like, oh, oh crap, now I'm going to be held to a standard. Okay? And I, I, don't, I don't know about you, I don't like being held to standards, okay? I've already disclosed that. I'm not too good at that. That's not the emphasis of what Jesus is saying. These are, these are promises. And he's saying, since you've already received these things, you, you give it away. It's because you have been forgiven, and you are, not, you are not judged, and you are not condemned, and you are forgiven, and you have been given to, you get to give the same things away. He's, he's emphasizing what we've received in Christ. Sometimes words like this make us uncomfortable. Let's just take forgiveness as an example. We hear things that Jesus himself says. He says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Right? Lord's Prayer. We go through the lines of the Lord's Prayer. One of those lines is, forgive us our debts as what? We have also forgiven our debtors, or trespasses, whatever you want to use. Sounds conditional. And then one verse later, Jesus says, in, in the same, right after the, he ends that teaching on the sermon, he goes, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Does anybody else get uncomfortable with that? Okay, it sounds 
conditional. But what is he saying? He's saying, I've already given you these things. The evidence of me giving it to you will be that you'll share it with other people. If you're not getting judged, why are you judging other people? If you're not being condemned, why are you condemning? If I've given so much grace and mercy to you, why don't you share those with other people? In Matthew 18, to illustrate this, Jesus tells the parable of an un- unforgiving servant. A guy owes a billion, a million dollars, I forgot the exact amount, millions of dollars to uh, uh, his master that he can't pay. And he begs, hey, forgive me. And the master says, you know what? You'll never be able to pay this off. I'll forget the debt. Basically, the master absorbed the debt and let him go. And then the master goes out and finds, finds the guy that owes him t- 10 bucks. And what does he say to that guy he, owe, he owes 10 bucks to? What does he say to him? Pay up. And the people around him, and then he chokes the guy. He gets mad and chokes him. He's violent with him. And other servants see this, and they go back to the master and say, you know, I don't know about you. I have a problem with that. Uh, not I. They were saying to the master, we have a problem with that. So the master calls them in. He says, is this true? And he said, and then he asks them a rhetorical question. He says, I forgave you so much. Should not have you forgiven somebody who owed you so little? And what's the answer? Yes. It's a rhetorical question. It, yes. Okay, and then Jesus says to him, he said, and then Jesus ends that part saying, and so your heavenly Father will do to you. And he said, throw him into the prison. Get him out of here. He will pay until his debt's paid, which is never. What Jesus is saying in that parable is the people who have actually understand and receive truly the forgiveness of God will share that forgiveness with other people. But people who refuse, people who refuse are demonstrating that they really have never received the forgiveness that God has offered them. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is emphasizing in love. You judge not, and you won't be judged, because you weren't. He's playing with it. Don't condemn. Give away what you've already received. And that's, and that's the measure, and, 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 and these things boss. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. That's actually a promise. Okay? It, it's not meant to be the threat. It's meant to be a promise. Jesus is being positive here, saying contextually, in the positive part of the, uh, verse 35, he says, verse 35, but if you love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So in line with that, if that's the measure you're using, that's what you get, more. He's actually, he's actually demonstrating to them, this is the promise, if you demonstrate that, you'll get even more than you expect. It's not a threat, it's a promise. We, we celebrate communion every week as per the instruction of the Lord. But part of that is to remind us in His infinite wisdom that we need to be reminded regularly that Christ died for our sins. And as we go up to the table, even today, and we think about this whole loving our enemies, remember like passages like Romans 5. God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or if while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to, to God uh, by the death of Christ. Or maybe First John. We love because he first loved us. And this, this taking of the bread and the wine is a demonstration every week that we can love. Why? Because he first loved us. And communion is a reminder, not, just of, uh, not primarily of the command to love, it is a reminder to us that, we, that he has loved us and given so much that he died for us. He knows we need that. 
I just want to share with you a couple closing thoughts as I was mulling this over over the past couple weeks. The world says the status quo is to love the loving. Followers of Christ are supposed to be love the unloving. And, and um, so as I was thinking through this this past couple weeks, a, a question occurred to me. Who, who are the unloving in my life? Who are the enemies in my life? And here's the problem. I couldn't think of very many. So what does that say? Well, first, and, and I don't have enemies. I got people who are annoyed with me. <laughs> I got people who don't like me, okay? I got I, I, people stand in line for that, okay? I'm talking about because of my walk with Christ. That's what's at stake here. That's what the issue is. Because of my walk with Christ, who is against me? I'm having a hard time finding somebody. Which says to me, three, one of three things. Or all three. <laughs> you decide. First of all, I do think we live in American culture. We live in a culture that has just put Christianity on the shelf. That has just, we, is, is considered irrelevant. Yeah, if you want to have some of those kind of spiritual choices, add, add Jesus to your life. I'm going to ask Buddha. You're going to ask whatever you want. I'll be an atheist. It's okay. You do whatever you want. So I think we live in a culture like that. I think also Christianity and the church is associated often with political agendas, unfortunately. So therefore, the world doesn't take Christianity serious, and they don't take Christians serious. That's one thing. Okay, that's my, that's my out, right? No. The second one I thought of is, am I near enough to non-Christians in order to even make enemies? Am, am I around anybody to offend with my walk with Christ? And I'll be honest with you guys, this is something that Monica and I have been conversing for a while, and I've actually shared with Josh and the elders and other things, is I have a problem, I have lots of problems, but a problem I have in my life is I'm around Christians all the time. My job is I train Christians. I'm an elder at a church, I spend time. My family are Christians. I don't have a lot of contact with non-Christians. That's a problem. That's a problem. And maybe some of you are in the same boat. It, there's a comfort level there. But, you know, I annoy some of them, but n they're not my enemies in Christ. And there's a third thing I thought of. That even if I w was, and even if and when I am around those who don't know Christ, who don't know Jesus, do my actions and words reflect the truth of the gospel so that they would even see a difference in me to be offended by anyways? It, when I am around non-Christians, I don't mean offended because I'm obnoxious, but because my life is so different and I'm transformed by the gospel and I'm willing to share the love of Christ, I'm willing to be verbal about it and in action about it, that I'm so bold with that that they're actually would be taken back by that? that they, Who is this Jesus freak guy? Who is this radical? I can't say that I would be. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, the verse that went around in my head all week, was for the, for the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what was bothering me about that, I believe that passage, but what was bothering me, if it really is, the message, the gospel message really is the power of God, is that power working in me and through me enough that people think it's foolish? The people are offended 
by my radical commitment and love to Christ and my response to Christ's love that I want to share it with everybody else? How about you? Does that mark your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your generosity. We thank you for the generosity of your love that flows and flows and flows and flows. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who shows your love. That you don't love from a distance, you love close up. That, Lord, that you love with a sacrificial love that just keeps on giving. Lord, we especially thank you for Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray for those here who may not know that, have never responded in repentance and faith, that you would work in their heart to draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those who have, who have responded to the call of the gospel and, and are your followers and are your disciples, I pray that you would draw them, Lord, closer to yourself, that you, through your work of your spirit and your word, would help them to not only understand the command to love, but you would enable them to be loving because of the radical um, transformation that's in their life because of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand the truth of the gospel, the huge dimensions of the gospel, how awesome it is, and that we would be even overwhelmed with not only praise and worship, but in response of obedience to the call you place on us because you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise and glory. And in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.